Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, professor and licensed therapist. It's just me today. I thought I would do an episode on choosing a career in psychology or psychotherapy and applying to graduate training programs. Listener Zoe wrote in the following email, and, and others have asked me very similar questions, both through the podcast, over email, and also at the school where I teach. So her email goes like this, and I'm skipping over the parts where she talks glowingly about the email and about me, of course, so I won't go into that, but just let it be known that listener Zoe loves me and the podcast. Okay. Uh, I quote, as I progress through the stages of preparing to apply, I find myself very afraid and discouraged. It's very odd to me, actually, because I'm not doubting that I want to do this work, but I'm also very unsure as to my suitability for it. I worry that I'm not capable of handling the emotional stress of other people and their suffering. I keep putting off the application process, thinking that I need to be more mature. I just graduated from college. I'm 22. But then I reproach myself a little for stalling and not moving forward in my life where I could. So she asks um, the following questions. My question is, how did you know you were ready to be a therapist? Did it take a lot of time to adjust to the demands of the job? Or was it something you felt fairly comfortable with despite moments of stress? Do you think there may be some people who want to do the work but are not constitutionally built for it? Or can anyone do it with the right amount of effort and motivation? So these are very good questions. And I would say they're very common questions, I would say. So this is basically just off the top of my head because I feel like, well, it's not exactly off the top of my head. I, I've answered questions like this throughout my 15 years of being an instructor in a graduate training program, but um, I don't have anything formally written down. So this is just off the top of my head. Okay. So, uh, so first of all, listener Zoe says that she thinks she might not be mature enough. And she says that she's 22. It's true that in my school anyway, at Antioch University, Seattle, that most students are around 30, I would say. I would say the, the distribution curve has its you know biggest bump in the middle around 30, early 30s. Uh, there certainly are people in their 20s, and there are people all the way up to 70, or I don't know, maybe 65. So there's a wide range of people that decide to become a therapist. I would say there's there there might be another mini bump at the age of like 45. I see a lot of people um, deciding to do a second career in psychotherapy that come to my graduate training program. Uh, but certainly there are um, some people who are 22. There aren't very many of them, I'll tell you that. I, I don't know exactly why. I, I suspect that in Seattle, the 22-year-olds who want to go into psychotherapy or psychology will go to one of the other training programs in Seattle. There are other training programs that I think are more known for younger counseling students, but that's just a guess. Antioch University is geared more towards adult learners and not geared so much towards people who are just graduating from college, although Antioch can certainly, can certainly work with 22-year-olds. So when, when listener Zoe asked me about this, she says, you know, I feel like I'm not mature enough. I'm just 22. I feel like I, I don't, I feel like I don't have what it takes to be a therapist yet. Maybe I need to grow older. So when she asked that, I thought of a student who just graduated, who I worked with for many, many quarters, many years, really. 
she was 22 or even 21, maybe 20, actually. Uh, in the States, we have, or in Seattle anyway, Washington State, we have this thing called Running Start where people, while they're in high school, can go to college and get high school credit and college credit at the same time. So in essence, they can get their two-year college degree when they graduate from high school. So they both get their high school diploma and a, what do we call an associate's degree uh, when they graduate from high school at the age 18. And so they can graduate from a four-year college at the age of 20. And I think she was, I think she did that. So by the time I started working with her, she had already been through the graduate training program for a while, and she was now starting her internship, and I worked with her for a year and a half. So once a week, we would meet in a small group of about six interns, and she was one of those people, and, and, I, and she was in that class for, for 18 months, so I got to know her pretty well. And in the first, um, I don't know, maybe nine months that she was an intern, she had a lot of struggles with her confidence level in relation to her age. And she would often talk about how she felt like she was too young. She didn't know what she was doing and that she would never have what it takes, that no one would ever listen to her, that her clients would look at her and say, she's a little girl. I'm not going to take the advice from a little girl. Um, and incidentally, when I started out, I was 24 25 and I looked like I was 17 and the clients would sometimes treat me as such. I'm 42 now and people often think I'm in my twenties, particularly older people. And so I'm, I get in the habit of telling people how, how old I am. Although I'll tell you, I, I'm not that this isn't to say that only 42 year olds can be good counselors. Certainly there are 25 year olds that can be good as well. When I was 25, I, I think I, knew a thing or two, but, um, but anyway, so the reason why I bring up this student is because by the end of her program, when she, by the time she graduated, which was not last quarter, but the quarter before that, I think, or maybe it was last quarter. By the time she graduated, she was very confident in her work and she was considered by many in our case consultation group, our, you know, six students and by the uh, co-workers that she worked with at her agency, she was a she was considered to be an expert in what they call TFCBT, which is trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. She worked a lot with abuse survivors who were children, um, children who were abuse, abuse survivors, sexual abuse survivors, and so she she at first was quite overwhelmed by the work and overwhelmed with working with the parents and, and this sort of thing. But by the end, she she was an expert when. Whenever uh, a peer had a question about a client who had been through abuse, they would go to her and ask her what her opinion was, and she would provide uh, wonderful advice to them. And she felt confident, and, and she felt confident in an area that therapists working for 20 years don't have confidence in. So I saw her really come into her own, and she did all that work herself. I certainly did my part to support her and to try to build up her confidence and to, and to be there when she was going through a lot of difficult emotional times. And certainly her friends and family and, and peers were there for her as well. But, but she did all the work and she was there in the trenches working hard and trying to gain confidence and trying to look 
on the positive side of things, you know, trying to tell herself that she knows what she's doing, even though she feels as though she doesn't know what she's doing. So it's quite a process. It's not simply something that you just have like, Oh, I now have confidence or I'm just going to tell myself, I know what I'm doing. Being a therapist. I I often tell students, I, I say that you don't really know, you don't feel like you know what you're doing until about five years after you graduate. I remember hearing about this during graduate school, you know, 16, 17 years ago, and being very angry about that idea. I thought, that's absurd. If if I have to wait five years after I graduate to feel confident, I don't want to do this, so this person must be wrong. But I remember about five years after I graduated, there was this point where I just suddenly felt like I didn't have to justify myself anymore, and I didn't get a cold sweat whenever someone called me to consult about a client. I just felt like I was okay. I, I didn't feel like I knew everything because that's absurd. And I certainly knew that I had my faults and I certainly knew that I had my shortcomings, but I wasn't in a constant state of that awareness of my shortcomings, if you know what I'm saying, which is, I think, yeah, I'm exaggerating to some extent, but I think it's a, a common thing for people to feel. And I tell my students this as well. I say, yeah, I draw on the board this learning curve and I and I say, you know, here's the learning curve and I, I don't label it in terms of time. And I think a lot of students say, oh, I must be about halfway up the learning curve. And, and I and I point to a very early point on the learning curve where they're, say, at like, you know, 3% up the ladder of learning. And I say, here's where you are. And, you know, it always gets kind of a chuckle from the class, but I totally believe it. When I look back on my learning curve, I certainly thought I was 50% up the ladder when I was in graduate school, but I was really only 3%. And I think it's fine to say to yourself that um, you're learning quickly, but the field of psychology and the field of psychotherapy is so vast and so complicated and so squishy in terms of its data. You know, it has to do with emotions and, and instinct and wisdom that it just takes forever to to work your way up the ladder and it's not like another job where you you know you you have a finite amount of information to figure out this is philosophy it's the meaning of life it's who you are as a person it's what is good as what is good in life it is how to help people and who are people and there's a you know infinite variability in in who people are and so every client is a new experience and so it's just too complicated to master quickly. And so five years, you know, in light of that is actually pretty quick. So, um, where was I? I'm rambling. Um, so my advice to listener, to listener Zoe, almost called her Chloe, listener Zoe. Yeah. To, to listener Zoe is that even though she is young, after going through a good training program, I should say that there, I, I know there are people that, that go through, other programs and get pretty poor educational experiences. But if you go through a good training program, you should emerge with a, a good understanding of what you're doing and and a good uh, skill level, a good knowledge base to build one's career and to continue learning. You, you always need to be continually learning as a therapist. It's, it's one of those jobs that you just have to be reading and going to conferences and consulting really for the rest of your career. When I started out, I didn't worry so much about the ability to handle hearing a lot of difficult emotional suffering 
from clients. For, for whatever reason, I just didn't worry about that. I was probably naive to the effect of that, but it, it didn't worry me the way that it does listener Zoe. The thing that I worried about was the ability to be compassionate. When I, when I was in graduate school, I would listen to my classmates and my fellow interns, and I would hear some of them talk about having having the ability to be very nurturing to clients. And since I was a young male and socialized not to be very nurturing to people, I thought I would never have that ability, and I really envied the people who had that ability. And, and I remember asking around, trying to figure out how I could have that or, or if I ever could, or if it just wasn't in me and maybe I just have to accept that and I'll just be a cold ass therapist. You know, I'll just always be that cold calculating lab coat type therapist. But what I didn't realize was at the time, I very much had a lot of compassion. I just wasn't used to expressing it. I didn't know how to communicate it very well. It was in my heart, definitely, but I didn't know it was there, I guess is a good way of putting it. And over time, as I worked on it and thought about it and watched others in terms of how they communicated their compassion, because it's one thing to have a feeling. It's another thing to be able to communicate it well to a client. And how do you communicate it as a therapist as opposed to a spouse or a family member? You know, there, there are different ways that you communicate compassion depending on the situation. Certainly there can be a lot of over, overlap. But, but over time, I... Made it, a, you know, so I made it a priority, and over time, I eventually felt pretty good about my compassion towards clients and, and my ability to be nurturing. It's something that I, I always um, take note of and think about and try to get inspiration for. Like when I did a review of the movie Short Term 12 in, in a previous episode of Psychology in Seattle, that movie is inspiring to me and maybe to others, to be compassionate with clients, to have that mode where you give and give and don't feel like you're draining yourself, if that makes any sense. So that's what I struggled with early. And maybe listener Zoe's issue of wondering if she can handle listening to a lot of suffering from clients is along those lines, that maybe she has that capacity but just doesn't know she has it. But who knows? But I'll get more to that later, maybe. Now, having said all that, it might sound like I'm trying to encourage listener Zoe to become a therapist and not worry about her worries. But I don't want to give that impression because there is certainly something to think about in terms of whether or not one can handle the pressures of being a therapist. There are certainly a lot of other jobs that can be satisfying to one's life, but have a lot less emotional stress. Now, having said that, when I when I say that, even accountants and people who work at Microsoft, I know of, have a tremendous amount of emotional distress because they work with people. And whenever you work with people, you bump into issues. In some ways, working with people as a therapist has less stress because your purpose is to help people with their issues. Whereas when you work at Microsoft and and, and your boss has a lot of issues, your boss doesn't necessarily want you to help them with their issues. Not, you know, so it can be a lot more frustrating in that way. But anyway, so on the other side of the fence, you have people who I know who could not handle the stress of being a therapist. I remember when I was early in my career and still working at a community mental health agency, 
I was working with an intern, so I must have been just graduated, and I was training an intern on how to run an anger management group with teenagers. And I have vague memories about this because this would have been, I don't know, 1997, 1998 or something. And we all know that was a long time ago. Um, listener Zoe, for instance, was uh, five years old so or four years old. So she doesn't remember it at all in all likelihood. But um, so, uh, yeah, I feel old now. Okay. So I, re- I remember working with her and she was a fellow Asian sister. You know, I'm Asian, so... Asian sister. And I remember she was extremely smart and got wonderful grades and was very professional. And I thought, man, she knows more than I do. She's, she's, she's still an intern. She is going to go far in this world. She just has that kind of air about her that she was going to rule the world. You know, she was going to be a CEO of, of a major counseling agency or something. And we started working in group, so I was I was leading the anger management group, and these are teens that have a lot of issues, shall we say. It's not just with anger, but also with their social skills and their tendency to create chaos around them and to attack verbally the therapist, although not very frequently. Mainly what the annoying thing about being a leader of a group like that is the apathy that the kids will have, but anyway... So I I remember working with her and, again, on first impression, thinking, man, she's going to go far. Well, there was a crisis where I left her in the group by herself. I don't know why. I must have had to get some files or something. So I left her in the anger management group by herself for a bit. It must have been five minutes or something. When I came back, she was terrified, and and, and she said, Oh, no, no. And the kids were talking amongst themselves. And she comes to me and she says, a, a, a boy from from high school just came in through the back door here and grabbed one of the girls. And, you know, and they seem to know each other. They seem to be like boyfriend, girlfriend or something. And he said, uh, you know, come with me. And she, and the girl did. And now she's gone. I don't know where she is. And, and I don't know what to do. I don't I don't know what to do. And. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, I've never been highly reactive in situations like that. I just, I just think, well, you know, worst case scenario, I lose my job and my career is over. But you know, there are worse things in life that could happen. I guess I don't know. The first thing I told her was, well, whatever the case may be, it's completely my fault because I left, I left the room, and and I probably shouldn't have done that. So whatever worry you have. You know, I guess you could worry about me, but you don't have anything to worry about for yourself because you're not responsible for it. And then the second thing I did was I just called the police because I just know that that's just the best case, the best, you know, that's a the best thing to do in a situation like that and the parents. So I don't even remember what happened with it. I'm sure it was no big deal. I'm sure the parents got upset at the at the girl for leaving group with this boy and, and all was well eventually. But But this really shook the the intern therapist. I remember, I think she called me later that night and was still very afraid and was wondering if, if I had heard anything because essentially the the girl was on the run and no one knew where she was. And I said, um, no, I haven't heard anything. I, I don't know how I ever could hear anything because this is like pre email, pre internet. So it was, you know, once you left the office, you didn't even necessarily have access to voicemail. So 
now I feel old again. Uh, okay. So she, um, was very upset and, uh, rightfully so it's a, it's, it's an upsetting situation, but it was, it really affected her in a way that I could see was not healthy for her. She was extremely upset about it and extremely distressed and took it very personally and thought she was to blame and she should have done something. And what if something happens to this girl and, and what could I have done to have stopped it? And she, you know, it was, she was really ruminating on it. And the next day we talked about it. I'm, I might be getting the details kind of wrong here, but, <clears throat> but anyway, eventually I remember she quit she told me that she didn't want to be a therapist and it wasn't because of this event solely, but that was part of it was, um, but there were, there were other events that led her to believe that she was not constitutionally set up to handle this kind of work, that her anxiety or her tendency to take responsibility when she probably shouldn't, or just something about the work was too difficult for her to handle. And she obviously had to think about it a lot because she had already spent probably a year and a half in school and maybe twenty, thirty thousand dollars and a lot of her time and, and energy and that would all just be thrown away because there's really nothing you can do with that half master's training. So I do remember her and I and I never forgot her and I don't even remember her name. I guess it'd be interesting to find her and, and email her and see what she's up to. But it's and to hear her, her side of the story. Cause maybe there's other factors that led to her quitting, but, but anyway, so it can, it is true that for some people, they decide that it's just not their cup of tea, that they can't handle it. Um, that's a funny way of putting it. It's not that they can't handle it. It's just that for, for those people, they, for whatever reason, suffer much more than the average therapist, and they decide that it's just too much for them. I, I have a friend that I graduated with. We were in the same cohort going through our master's training program, and I remember soon after graduation, she said she didn't want to be a therapist because she just didn't like the work and she didn't like listening to people's suffering. And so she went all the way through the program and was fully able to do the work once upon graduating, but decided to never do it. And I've heard stories like that. It's pretty rare, but, but you can't expect everyone who decides to enter the field to stick with it. I mean, that's just true with any career, you know, not everyone who says I want to be X, you know, sticks with being X for the rest of their life. And, and so some of those people drop out. Uh, and I've certainly seen uh, a number of students, not not the majority, probably, I don't know, 3 to 5% of the students at some point during the graduate their graduate training program decide to not continue for one reason or another. So another thing to think about is self-care. And, you know, when listener Zoe asks about whether or not she can handle the difficulty of being a therapist... I think about self-care. I think about how all therapists need to take care of themselves. Uh, they need to spend much more effort taking care of themselves than maybe other people do. Not only because the job can be very stressful, but our clients depend on us. They depend on us to be healthy and available for them. And one way to do that is to make sure that 
we're healthy and that, and we, and we sustain and attain health by paying attention to what we need and by self care. And, you know, in some ways, once you become a therapist, for some people, I imagine this is true, you actually have more support and better self-care, even though the job can be very stressful, even though graduate school can be very stressful. Certainly for some people, this isn't true, and I'm always um, recommending that they address this. But but some people, before they be before they enter graduate school and before they become a therapist, you know, they, they just have the, their average amount of self-care and their average amount of support from other people around them. Well, when, once you enter a training program, a lot of them will require you to go to therapy. So, boom, you have a therapist. You are instantly connected with or you have the opportunity to connect with uh, a lot of people who are in the exact same boat as you. They're students just like you, and they're feeling often the same feelings that you are feeling. And so you can talk together and, and help each other. When you become an intern, uh, good good training programs will have a very tight-knit case consultation group where you end up talking about your personal lives with each other and crying together and supporting each other and going out for drinks with each other and and going to each other's weddings eventually and, and hanging out for the rest of your life together because these people are very important to you. And so certainly that's how I like to run my case consultation group is to foster relationships among the interns so that they can support each other. So you know, if you prior to coming to graduate school, if if you don't have that kind of thing, then you'll have even more support, hopefully, once you enter a training program. Having said that, I should say that probably the average training program, this is just me speculating off the top of my head among the programs that I know, they don't necessarily have a very tight-knit case consultation culture. And I think that Antioch has particularly my program, the couple and family therapy program really has that in spades. And it's my job to monitor student experience. And one of the things that students universally enjoy is the case consultation groups. And again, like I was saying earlier, you're in the class for uh, a minimum of 12 months, maybe 15, maybe 18. I had a student in my section that was in the in the course for what would that be 21 months so he was in my class for 21 months and uh, with other people who had were also in the class for you know say 15 months you get to know each other pretty well especially when the class only has six people in it so and it's not a class class it's not like i'm lecturing it's it's the whole time it's it's just a group talking format where they talk about their cases and in, and also about their personal life. Yeah, so in some ways, becoming a therapist, you have more support, or at least you have the opportunity, and you're definitely encouraged to have it. Other self-care things off the top of my head that are very important, uh, really to everybody, but again, particularly for therapists because people depend on us, are sleep. Make sure you get enough sleep. Uh, I used to not get enough sleep, and I've recently realized that I need about seven, eight hours a night pretty consistently. Uh, being consistent about sleep, falling asleep at the same time, waking up at the same time, very important. You know, it's it sounds kind of lame because you can't stay out late and party and that sort of thing, and certainly, you know, you can do that if you want. But, but sleep is extremely important, and, and if you find yourself often tired and yawning and this kind of thing, you're probably doing that to yourself, that there's probably a way around that. And it probably doesn't involve just drinking more Starbucks. But I could preach forever about sleep, 
but I won't. Anyway, um, another thing, obviously, uh, for self-care is to be in therapy. I think a lot of people are surprised when they hear that therapists are supposed to be in therapy really throughout their lives, throughout their careers. You know, there there were times in my career when I wasn't in therapy, but I have been in therapy a lot. And even when I didn't feel like I had a lot to talk about, I, I would go to therapy because you just never know. And there's always something to talk about, really. So, so yeah, so for proper self-care, you really should be in therapy. And I can't emphasize that enough, particularly to people who are just starting out. I think people in graduate school and, and you know, post-grads, I think definitely understand the benefit of being in therapy. But I'm surprised by, I don't know, maybe 25% of new students will say they've never been in therapy before and they weren't planning on going. Now, maybe they've had a really idyllic life and they don't have a lot of trauma or they don't have any trauma and they don't have a lot of psychiatric issues. And, and so there isn't anything pressing them to go to therapy. But being a therapist depending on the type of work you're doing. But for the vast majority of therapists, we really absorb a lot of issues. We absorb a lot of suffering. We have to work with a lot of people, not only as clients, but coworkers and supervisors and da-da-da, that have issues, and we bump up against those issues. And prior to being a therapist, you can, you know, say you're working at Microsoft and your boss is bugging you. You can just say, well, you know, my boss is an asshole, so there you go, That that's why. Well, when you're a therapist, you need to be very self-aware because when you're working with your clients, you can't just call someone a name and say, well, that's the end of the story. You have to reflect. You have to think, well, is my boss an asshole or am I, am I being the asshole? Am I doing something that is causing my boss to be an asshole? What about my boss is triggering something in me that is causing me to react this way right now? What could I do to make this better? All those things are extremely important for the therapist to be thinking about, uh, whether it's their boss or a client or whatever. And so being in therapy is a part of that self-awareness process. Um, other things, obviously, are eat right, you know, go to your doctor, floss. Another thing that I actually run into a lot is the sexism that is inherent in heterosexual American relationships we are still living in a sexist society and not all heterosexual relationships have sexist elements within it, but, but many do. And I've, and I've seen a lot of it in, in my students, a lot of therapists are women. I think the majority of psychotherapists are women these days. So a lot of the students are women. So I've seen this a lot is they will complain about their spouses, their husbands, or their boyfriends not doing their fair share of the housework or not doing their fair share of the child rearing. Even though they're both working hard, the husband says, well, I don't have time for that. And the wife says, well, someone's got to do it. So it might as well be me since this is what women are supposed to do. Now, again, not all heterosexual relationships are like this, but I would say a, a good percentage of them are. And what I recommend is that you, if you're one of these men or women, you work to balance that out because it's just not fair. And this will help self-care for the women anyway. Um, and I guess for the men in the long run, because you'll have a happier wife and 
There's nothing more energizing than having a happy wife. So what I recommend if, if you're a woman is, is to really take inventory of the potential imbalances in your marriage. And again, talking with your therapist is a, is a good venue to, to do in that situation. And to explore that with your spouse. You know, you don't tell your spouse, hey, I listened to a podcast and Kirk Honda tells me that you're supposed to do more housework. It's, it's not really the approach I recommend. Although, you know, you never know if it'll work. But what I recommend is, you know, people sit down and say, okay, here, here's all the jobs we have to do at home. I feel like I'm doing much more of the work. But let, give me your opinion, please, because um, I'd like to get your input. Whenever I've had, as a couples therapist, this conversation with heterosexual couples, the husband almost always says, yeah, you're right. I'm probably not doing half of the work. And I've kind of known that all along. <laughs> or you'll get another response where the man will say, oh, yeah, I'm totally doing 50%. I mow the lawn. I lube the cars. I get things off of the you know, the tall shelves that you can't reach. I open the pickle jar. I'm doing 50%. And the woman says, um, okay, well, if that's what you're doing, let me tell you what I'm doing. I get up every night to tend to the baby who's crying, who's six months old, and you never do that. I feed the baby. I make sure we have the diaper bag. I, I change the diapers. I cook the food. I buy the food. I cut out coupons. I, you know, so you can tell like the list just goes on and on. And when you make the list, again, eventually the in heterosexual relationships, the husband will say, oh, wow, you do a lot of work. I really didn't know that. And the reason why people don't know it is because you're, you're not there when they're doing the work. Why am I going on this sexist tangent? Um, because I want to? I don't know. Okay, so getting back to the task at hand, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, listener Zoe was asking about, <clears throat> asking about stress. I was talking about self-care. So another, other kind of self-care issues are addiction. If you have an addiction in your life, you probably want to get that under control, even if it's caffeine. Um, you want to think about how you think. You want to think about the way you think and how that affects the way that you feel and how much stress you have. Maybe some of the things that you think add to your stress, like pressure you put on yourself or perfectionism, this kind of thing. If you have any trauma in your history, make sure you recover from it. No one ever fully recovers from trauma. But one of the things that I have seen in some novice therapists is that they've been traumatized and that trauma gets triggered when they are working as a therapist, either with clients or they're in class or, or something. And naturally, when you have a trauma in your life and it gets triggered, you dissociate or you have PTSD symptoms or you become emotionally flooded. It, it's difficult to cope. You, you're not you're not an effective therapist in in that moment, and you're also suffering quite a bit. So it's important to work on that. Now, you know, do you need to fully recover before you work with clients? No, but but be working on it. It could take years, but but make sure that that you work on it because the more you avoid it, the the more it will impact you and your work. Other things, you know, mindfulness, meditation, this will help with self-care. Um, what else can I think of? But about stress overall, I'll say it, it isn't as bad as it might seem. I'm, I'm probably describing it like it's this continual barrage of horribleness that you're, you're constantly um, dealing with and stressed out. And it's, it's really not that way. If you ask the average therapist, they'll say, yeah, you know, my life is stressful. Um, but... Is it any more stressful than people who work at any job? I would say probably not. Um, 
if, if I think about my clients who come to me who have a lot of stress in their professional lives, I would say that stress is just an American thing. It's just, you know, it's just one of those things that most Americans have. And so being a therapist might have a little bit more stress, uh, a different kind of stress. But like I said, a part of the job is this expectation of self-care and support. I mean, imagine if you were in Microsoft and your job entailed having a sit down with your boss once a week for a couple hours and really just told each other what was on your mind and how you felt about each other. Think about how much less stress you might have. Some of you might think that would be more stress, but um, and maybe that's true. But if you could really sit down and explain yourself and tell tell your boss, look, you know, when you said that, it really hurt my feelings, and your boss would say, "Oh my God, I didn't know that. I'm sorry." You know, this is why I said it, but you know, I'll try not to do that again. You know, therapists are equipped with the ability to have those kinds of communications. At least they're supposed to. And if you have those communications, your stress can go down. So being a therapist might not be as stressful as it might seem. And that's what I'm telling to listener Zoe, who's very worried about the stress. So, so again, getting back to listener Zoe, she asked me the following question. Do you think there may be some people who want to work but are not constitutionally built for it? Or, or can anyone do it with the right amount of effort and motivation? This is a very good question. I don't have the research in front of me, and I don't even know if it's been researched. I suspect that it has been in small amounts. But um, off the top of my head, I, w- I would speculate that there are some people that will have a harder time than others regarding their constitutionality. I, again, as I said before, being a perfectionist, uh, I've certainly seen novice therapists who are highly perfectionistic have – is that a word, perfectionistic? Um, they, they have a really hard time, not only in graduate school, but, but as a therapist. Because graduate school in counseling or psychology is so ambiguous. There's, there's, there's no right answer to the questions that are asked. There is a lot of opinions. You can take one class. I, I, thought, of a, I thought of a new uh, phrase that I, I don't, I think I made it up, but I'm not sure. I might be plagiarizing it. The, the, the old phrase that I know is not mine is if you ask 10 therapists, if, if you ask, yeah, if you ask 10, if you ask 10 people in the field a question, you're going to get 10 different answers. Well, 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 my patented, I think, phrase that I thought up yesterday as I was walking through downtown was if you ask 10 therapists something, you'll get 11 different answers. So it's, it's the joke, uh, ratcheted up to 11. If you're spinal tap fans, you'll, you'll understand that. But, um, so, but I just kind of like that because it, it, you know, it really is true. You ask 10 people in the field of psychology or the field of counseling a question, you're going to get 11 answers. You're, you're, and, it's really a, an annoying thing if you want to know the answer to the question. You know, if there's a physics question, you can go to 10 physicists and probably, unless it's some esoteric cutting edge topic like string theory or something, if, if you ask them about, you know, Newtonian physics, you're going to get one answer or at least one right one. Maybe one of them will give you a bad answer, but there's a right answer and a wrong answer. In the field of psychology and counseling, there is no right answer oftentimes. There, there, there are some things that you can really say are right and wrong, like never have sex with your clients. That's, that's something that is 
you know, definitely wrong. And, and if you ask 10 therapists something, you ought to get one answer and that should be the answer. But, but if you ask someone like uh, a common thing that I hear students ask or novice therapists ask is what do you do when a client does X? Well, it really just depends. It depends on your style. It depends on your relationship. It depends on what's going to be helpful. It depends on the person. It depends on the issues. It depends on the day. It depends on everything. There's really no way to know. Sometimes the best response is to say nothing. And sometimes the best response is to say something. It's just so hard to tell. So people who are perfectionistic, they, this freaks them out. And I've seen them crumble under these circumstances and because they want to get it right but there is no right and they keep chasing after what is right and and then realizing it's not right to everybody or it's not the right answer and then they get anxious and uh, they have a lot of stress. Now, I've helped a lot of perfectionistic intern slash students through the program and they eventually begin to understand how to monitor their perfectionism. But I suspect that that woman I told you about earlier in the episode, my Asian sister uh, coworker, the intern, I think a, an element of it might have been perfectionism. And the pressure challenged that anxiety for her, and it just wasn't worth it to her. And, and also, I think, like I said earlier, being a trauma victim. If you have significant trauma that you haven't recovered from, then it, it might be very difficult to, to listen to difficult stories from people, particularly in the beginning, because as an intern and as a, as a novice therapist, you often don't have the choice of who you work with. You often, especially when you're an intern, you're just given clients and you can certainly speak up as an intern and say, I don't want this sort of client, but it's kind of hard to do that when you're begging for clients and when you're begging for an internship and when, you know, it's hard to differentiate one client from the next. And so if you're significantly triggered when hearing other people's trauma, then I would recommend that you do more work on recovering from that trauma before entering a graduate training program. Does it mean that if you suffered trauma, you can't be a therapist? Obviously not. It just, it just means that you should be fairly along the road of recovery. You never fully recover from trauma, but you and your therapist should talk about whether or not it's a it's a good idea for you to dive into a counseling or psychology uh, training program. And you know, getting back to what I just said a little bit ago, can you be can you can you can a can a person who's been through trauma be a therapist? It, it's so obviously the, the answer is yes, is because so many of people that work in our field have been traumatized at some point in their life. I suspect it's it's because of two reasons. One is if you've been traumatized, you've been to therapy and you you have an interest in psychology just because you've seen yourself react to trauma. So that might gravitate you towards psychology and, and counseling. But but another reason is is because most people in the world have been traumatized at some point. I, I don't know the statistics and it depends on your definition of trauma, but uh you know, many, many people have been traumatized in one in, in one form or another, whether it's sexual abuse or physical abuse or domestic violence, a car accident, a drug overdose, witnessing something horrific happening, like a, a seeing a horrific car accident. It, are these events all traumatic to people? Not necessarily, but they often are. And so, you know, we've all, ex most people have experienced some form of trauma. 
okay, what was I talking about? I'm trying to think of what other sort of person might not be a good fit for being a therapist, and I, I just really can't think of one. Um, I think it just comes down to whether or not you want to do it. If if this is something you really want to do, then you'll probably do what it takes to, to get there. And, and it's a long, winding road. It's not like just wanting it will get you there. You know, Wanting it will uh, give you the motivation to figure out what to do at any given moment to head you down the path. So, you know, you have to, you have to want it. It has to be something that's really in your heart that you want to do. And, and while I'm on the topic, you know, listeners always wanting to go into a doctoral program in psychology. And she's wondering if suffering of the clients will be too much for her. Well, the, the, the thing that I'll say is if, if you're going into psychology, particularly your career options are really varied um, and being a psychotherapist is only one of those career options. For a lot of people that don't know it, they might think, "Oh, psychology, psychologists—they're you know they—they're head shrinks." But uh, there are a lot of people who go into psychology that never become clinical psychologists. They—they they never work with clients. You certainly have to do it in all likelihood in your training program. But I think I'm pretty sure there are programs. I think UW, University of Washington, actually, their PhD in psychology, I think it doesn't involve a clinical element. So it involves research. It involves doing behavioral research on lab rats. Or the new field that you know, a lot of people are going into is neuropsychology. So you know, you're doing fMRI studies, and you're studying brain function and cell function and this sort of thing. I recently had a psychologist on the podcast who isn't a clinical psychologist and all he, Dr. Grubbs, all he's interested is in psychopharmacology. So he's a psychologist that, that focuses on drugs for the brain. And he uh, has done a lot of research on that. He did research during the Gulf War about um, Gulf War syndrome and the effects on the brain. And he also teaches a lot of classes to people who need to know more about psychopharmacology. So yeah, you could be a teacher, you could be a researcher, you could be an assessor. There are a lot of psychologists who just do assessments. You just test, you, you know, you're testing people like someone is claiming that they are not competent to stand trial and the lawyer calls you up and says, will you do an assessment on my client to determine whether or not they're competent to stand trial? And so you interview them and you give them a bunch of tests and you charge a lot of money and you spit back a report to the court and they might actually have you come into the court and testify about what you wrote in the report. And, th and that person may or may not have any clients. Often people that do assessments will do assessments, uh, you know, for half their career, for half of their week and then the other half of their week they'll, they'll see clients, but, but not always. Um, some psychologists go into community psychology and, the, and work for public health and try to figure out ways to affect large communities regarding psychology. Or there's crisis intervention people who will coordinate services as a psychologist. Or you could become an administrator of some agency. Or you could become a professor. There are a lot of jobs in psychology that don't involve listening to client suffering. So that's another thing to think about. Having said that, if you're going into a master's program that is in counseling or in marriage and family therapy, which is the one I teach at, 
the primary focus is clinical work. So you wouldn't go into a master's program if you weren't interested in being a therapist. Having said that, I feel like I should just do an episode on career paths for people in our field now that I think about it. So I hope I answered listeners always questions. I was just going to respond to her over email, but I thought, you know, there's really no way I can sum all this up in a quick email. And I know I've been asked this many other times. And I also think that I want to do a series of podcasts along these lines that are basically advice or research or literature on different topics that pertain to novice therapists or to people considering being a therapist or considering being a psychologist. So I, I, I'm kind of excited about that. It's actually something I might write a book about. I, I need to do more research as to whether or not the book that I have in my head has already been written. But so doing the podcast is a good way for me to kind of brainstorm different chapters in the book. But you know, I need some free time to write a book. That's not likely to happen anytime soon. So let's see, how can I summarize? Um, so listener Zoe is hesitating. She's She says she's procrastinating ap- applying to a doctoral psychology program. And she doesn't know if, if it's because she has an intuition that she isn't going to be able to handle the suffering of clients or if she's just procrastinating or if she's too immature. And, you know, so I think I addressed all those questions to some extent, but, but the the last thing that I'll say is that she's, you know, you're hesitating and there's, there's a reason for that, uh, potentially. And, and you, you might want to explore that. Um, you, you have time, you're 22, you're, you're not in a race. You're, you have a lot of time to think about this very important decision. You know, entering a doctoral program in in psychology is is really a massive decision, and you really got to know that it's in all likelihood a good decision. Because, I th- you know, I don't know what programs you're applying to, but the doctoral programs I know of cost in in excess of a hundred thousand dollars just in tuition, maybe as much as one hundred thirty thousand dollars, maybe more when you consider books and all that stuff. That's just tuition and books and and university fees and this sort of, this sort of thing, $130,000, you know, it's a, it's a lot of money. And, you know, frankly, a lot of that is going to be debt that you're going to be paying off for the next 10, 20 years of your life. God, it's horrible. Along those lines, I actually recommend that people try to work during their graduate training. Um, I know a lot of academics would, would, would not say that to you, but, but there's nothing worse than graduating and earning very little money, you know, right out of the gates and just looking at that huge amount of debt. So, um, you know, just something to think about. It, it's it's worth it to people, I'll say that. You know, they go into debt. Um, in my master's uh, program that I teach at, uh, I think tuition is somewhere around 40000 or something. But when you think about the meaning that you get out of the career and how enjoyable it is for people, it's, you know, it's, it's not that much money considering that, you know, you're going to be doing it for the rest of your life potentially. But anyway, you're, you're hesitating and that, and that's something to think about. Again, you're young and you have time to think about it. And I would contemplate why you're hesitating. Ask around. You've, you've asked me and I've given you a very long winded answer, you know, something to think about. I'm just one, one person. You should be asking many people, you know, there, there may be some unconscious reason that you're unaware of that you are hesitating. There might be something in your psyche that is saying to you, no, 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 don't go down this road because of blank. Now, does this mean 
you should not go down the road. No, it just means that you might want to take some time to explore what might be underneath there that, that your psyche is trying to tell you. Maybe it's something dire, like you know you've been traumatized and this is going to be unearthed in a traumatic way if you go to graduate school. That would be something to listen to. Or maybe it's something like your father does not want you to be a psychologist and you should never do something that your father doesn't say for you to do because you know how scary he can get when he's angry. Now, this is something that is definitely something to be aware of if, if you know, I'm just you know, brainstorming possible things in one psyche. But things along those lines, you would say, oh, okay, well, that's not a reason for me not to become a psychologist. That would explain why I'm having some hesitation, but it's not fair that I should go off of that notion and let that dictate my life. Another thing to think about, and I think this is probably very true for listeners, Zoe, is that you seem like a careful person and you're just making sure that it's the right choice. And that's a good thing. And like I said, you're young. You just graduated from college and you're hesitating, you say. But I think uh, being 22, having your bachelor's degree and contemplating whether or not a doctoral program in psychology is for you. I wouldn't call that hesitating. I would call that being rational. Like I said, most of the students that, that I am with, they are around 30 and, and some of them um, as old as 65. And so we would say that they might have hesitated, <laughs> but I wouldn't call them hesitating. I would call them life is a is a path and, and it has lots of twists and turns and, and that's what makes living great. So anyway, you know, you're thinking about it and that that's good. Another thing I think you might be underestimating your maturity. You you know, in the same way that I was underestimating my ability to be compassionate and nurturing, you you might be underestimating that ability. I don't know that. I don't know you. Maybe you're the most immature person in the world and I don't know that. Somehow I suspect um that you're not the most immature person in the world because I feel like I've met that person and that wasn't and that person's name was not Zoe, so Unless you're going by an alias and that person was you. I'm at the end of the podcast. And my brain is wandering. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think the, the last thing I say is, is this. The, the main thing I tell novice therapists is this. Just listen well and be curious. If you can do that, you'll be the best therapist in the world. You don't have to fix anybody. You don't have to be a genius. You don't have to know the exact thing to say at every moment. You don't have to be a god. People don't have to like you even. You just have to listen well, be a good listener, be a compassionate listener, be a, an attentive listener, a, an attuned listener, and be curious about someone's experience. That will do wonders for clients. Not for every client. Some clients don't want that, but, but many clients do, at least for part of the time that you work with them. If you can do that, and f for most people, for, for most people interested in psychology, they'll say, oh, I can do that. I, I do that all the time. I, I can totally do that. Well, so be confident in that. And for listeners, Zoe, I would say, if you can do that, which I don't know if you can or not, it, if you can listen well and have compassion and be curious and attempt to attune to someone, if you can do that, then you're probably okay as a psychotherapist. 
Um, as a psychologist, on the other hand, that's a whole other ball of wax because there's all sorts of other jobs, as I mentioned earlier, that are potential jobs involved in psychology. But when it comes to psychotherapy, um, if you can do that, then then you're probably doing okay. All right, that's the end of that bit there. I thought I might talk about music again. I will do this sometimes at the end of the episode. So if you're not interested in hearing about my band or about the music that we produce, then by all means, just turn it off now because I'm not talking about anything psychologically related beyond this point. But if you're interested, here it goes. Um, The song I'd like to talk about today is called Please Be Polite, and it's on our first album, uh, the band called Bread Knife Incident. And this was a fan favorite, and I thought I would just play an excerpt from it now. So what can I say about this song? I will say that the song is a good representation of the collaboration that I had with the drummer Carlos Padilla Klein and the bassist Brant Scanlon. The way that we write songs together is I bring in an idea and then Carlos the drummer will add his part and Brant the bassist will add his part. And this, what we think to be a wonderful thing emerges, whether or not other people think it's wonderful is yet to be seen, but, but it's really amazing when things come together and not all ideas come together in a wonderful way. Some of them don't, we just scrap them, but, but this one really seemed to come together in a, in a very emblematic collaborative way. For instance, the, the drum part is not something I ever would have come up with. And there are some parts in the drums where I'm just like, oh, that's interesting. And the bass part that Brant has is extremely complicated. I I actually uh, know this very well because I actually tried to make a techno version of this song and maybe I'll play it actually. Um, And the way that I did it was I electronically coded every single bass note that he made in the recording and took his bass part out and added this electronic bass line. But the electronic bass line was an exact replica of his bass line. But it's through a keyboard, so it sounds, you know, techno-y. Um, so actually, so so I had to uh, figure out every single note by ear what he was playing and plop it into the program at the exact moment that he was playing it. And uh, it's a beautiful bass line, and it's just amazing. It's um, Brant is really an amazing bassist. So actually, let me let me. So I'll I'll play. Um, a little bit of the song and again listen for the bass lining it's that don't 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 that part and then um i'll chime in and and then i'll play the techno one okay so now here is the techno version that that i made and incidentally everyone hated it even though i spent 
you know, I don't know, 50 hours on it. And by the time I was done, I thought, man, this is great. And I played it for everyone and everyone thought it was completely stupid. And so I just, I never, uh, uh, shared it with anyone again, except for all of you in podcast land. So here we go. One thing about songs that is difficult to write is endings of songs because there are so many cliche ways of ending a song and I I always try to find a way not to be not to be too cliche unless I'm trying to be cliche but anyway in this song I like what we came up with and I don't know how we came up with that I think the three of us just sort of said let's do this and I like how it ends because it it follow it, it plays the the theme of the song, which is the it does that bit on the guitar, but in a different feel. Um, it's the same tempo, but it has a, a different feel to it. And I just I like it when songs do that. When at the very end they kind of slip in this different feel to something. And so I'll just play the ending right now. Oh, but before I play the clip. Uh, another thing about this this ending part, I'm going to play the last chorus, and then I'll play, and then it'll transition to the ending part that I was talking about. But in the last chorus, I actually do a variation on the chorus in terms of melody. But one one of the things that I, I almost never do is is this convention in songs where you know you're playing the song and you have the chorus, and then the last chorus that you sing, you kind of go out and and you're improvising on the on the melody a little bit. It's usually a little bit more flamboyant. It's often higher in range. And I almost never do that because one thing is indie rock just doesn't have that kind of thing. It's more of a soul R&B thing. But I'm also kind of incapable of doing it. So so uh, that's another reason why I don't do it. But um, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, whenever I hear this convention or I do it in a song, it always reminds me of Hall & Oates. I grew up listening to a lot of Hall & Oates in the 70s when I was you know very young. My family listened to a lot of it. We had the best of, we had other albums and, and I, you know, unashamedly love Hall and Oates a lot. Of, I know it's sort of a cliche, ironic punchline in a lot of jokes, Hall and Oates, you know, but I grew up with the Hall and Oates and I think they wrote great songs. Of course, there are some songs that aren't so good, but they have a lot of good songs. And one of the things that uh, Daryl Hall would do often at the end of songs is he would do this. He would riff on the normal chorus by singing a different version of the chorus, different melody. Um, and if you've seen him in, in his in his contemporary performances, he does this in an annoying way. Like uh, when Mandy and I went to go see him in Seattle a few years ago, a couple two years ago, um, at Bumbershoot in Seattle, he, he did this to every single song. Like everyone else in the band was playing the song exactly the way it was recorded while Daryl Hall is singing every single lyric differently, every single, you know, it's all syncopated weird and da, 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 which makes you wonder. It's like, I wonder if Daryl Hall's recordings, it, it just happens to be that one time he sing it that one way. And every time he sing it, he sing it differently. And you know, when you go to see a show like that, you want to kind of sing along or at least know what to expect. And when they go completely off script lyrically or melody wise, it's just bothersome. I remember the first Lollapalooza when I when I saw um, J. 
Jane's Addiction, uh, Farrell or what was his name? Anyway, he he did that on every song, especially the popular ones. He just like completely went off script, and it, it was just I don't know. It just seems bothersome. As a performer myself, I can say like, yeah, you can get sick of singing songs for sure, but you know, people came to hear that that music it'd be like playing a different drum beat or a different chord it's like you know sing the song the way that people want to hear it i don't know it's just it's just annoying anyway so uh i'll play the last chorus and and you can hear the the way that i'm seeing it kind of like hauling oats the, the, the way that they do it okay so just go that and then it'll transition to that ending bit where the feel changes <laughs> And then, of course, at the end there, you can hear uh, us because we're recording at home and we don't have sound isolation. So you can hear a little bit of the um, metronome going off that the drummer was following. Uh, following. If, if you're a recording artist out there, you know that tempo is extremely important and not all drummers have a precise metronome in their head. And I, I would say that most people don't. Um, it's extremely hard to stay on track in terms of tempo, particularly if a song is a little di- more difficult to play. Um, there's a tendency for drummers to slow down because it's easier to play th- uh, songs slower than fast. So to keep our drummer on track, we would play with a metronome sometimes. So you can kind of hear the metronome in there. But one of the things that's really hard to do is try to figure out exactly what speed you want to play a song because whenever we would practice the songs, there would there's sort of a range of tempos that we would play it. And when we'd play the song live, we'd just sort of, you know, say, well, I wonder what tempo we'll play at this time. You know, so when you have to lock it down, it, it gets a little hard. Plus, when you write a sort of free form music like this, sometimes the tempo will change in songs, you know, like the chorus will be a faster tempo than the verse, this sort of thing. So when you lock it down to a, you know, a fixed metronome, sometimes it, it makes it hard to even play because you naturally will change the tempo throughout the song. But anyway, you can also hear us making a little joke, you know, like, um, cause whenever we would, we just joked around a lot. So you can hear us at the end of the recording, just kind of making these little jokes. Um, some of them not very classy. You can hear, uh, at the end, uh, Carlos in his, uh, Mexican accent, uh, making a little, cl- uh, classy joke there at the end. So, um, one thing I really like about this song is, and I like a lot of little, little moments in this recording is during the breakdown chorus toward the end when it gets quiet. I like how the guitar and the bass are harmonizing with each other. So let's just go to that right now. So 
So now getting to the lyrics. In previous episodes where I've talked about lyrics, I'll say that I don't really like reading lyrics. I think they should be integrated into the music of the song. And when you just read lyrics, they often sound just weird, you know. But um, in the effort of, you know, talking about the song, I thought I'd talk about the lyrics. Uh, And also, as I've said in other previous episodes, I like to have lyrics that have like a fictional story about a person or a, a situation. But this song doesn't have that. It is kind of like I don't. I'm not a poet or a artist in this way, so I don't really have the right language for this. But it's kind of like an impression of a situation or a feeling. And the basic impression that the lyrics give to me when I wrote them is of someone who is dating and someone who goes out and drinks alcohol. <laughs> um, I don't know why I said it like that, drinks alcohol. Um, so someone out who goes out and has cocktails and beers and that kind of thing. God, I how, how come I can't say this without sounding like a nerd? Anyway, um, someone who goes out and parties, God, nothing sounds right when I say it on, on the podcast, you know. Um, someone who likes to imbibe, uh, someone who drinks booze, someone who boozes it up, someone who gets drunk for fun. Uh, anyway, um, Someone who who dates, uh, who is kind of single, who is taking risks with women. And as I'm looking over the lyrics right now, I'm realizing that it's, yeah, it's about a heterosexual man. And the, the main line in the song is, please be polite. That's the title of the song. And essentially, it's the guy saying to women, okay, we're going to date. And things could go right or they could go wrong. They're likely to go funny at times. So at the very least, we can just be polite to each other. So even though we might uh, hurt each other's feelings on accident, let's, let's just be polite. There's no reason why we can't be polite. And essentially, again, the impression is, is the guy, I guess this is kind of a story to some extent now that I look at the lyrics. The guy is, he's trying to fall in love and he is maybe falling in love and he's having a drink for happiness. He's having another drink for love. So, so I'll just go through the lyrics here. Okay. So the, the verse, the first verse goes, Oh, here she comes. That must be her trading for smiles. Gotta be the man wishing you are lovely, lovely adored. So again, you know, it's just this guy and he's like, Oh, here comes this woman okay, we're, we're smiling at each other. This is going good. Okay. I got, I gotta be the man. I gotta, I gotta man up and be the man in the situation. And I'm, I'm, and I'm hoping that she's lovely. And I'm, I hope that she's the sort of person that I can adore. And then the chorus goes, have a drink, my love drink for happiness. She is yours tonight. Another drink for love. Try to be impressed or at least please be polite. So it's, you know, have a drink. Let's see what happens. Let's have, let's be happy. Um, she's yours tonight. Uh, maybe we'll fall in love and I'll try to be impressed by her because, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to fall in love. And the only, the only, the only way to fall in love is to be impressed. And, uh, but if I'm not impressed, then, you know, maybe I can just be polite at the very least. The second verse. Um, so I often do this convention that I'm sure is cliche, but the second verse is sort of a mirror reflection of the first verse. So the first verse is, oh, here she comes. That must be her training for smiles. Gotta be the man wishing you are lovely, lovely adored. 
Uh, the second verse is, is a mirror reflection. It says, oh, there she goes, instead of, oh, here she comes. Oh, there she goes. That wasn't her. Trading goodbyes, instead of first smiles. Trading goodbyes, looking away. Now you're wishing you were lovely, lovely as her. So he's being rejected. She's lovelier than him, and he and she's rejecting him, and he realizes that wasn't her. She, she wasn't impressed by me, even though... I was trying to be impressed by her. The tables were turned and she wasn't impressed by me. So now I'm kind of bummed out. And so the second uh, chorus goes, drink tonight because she was not impressed by a thing that you said. (laughs) The timing of her love was not right, but can we please be polite? So again, you know, you might as well drink because she was not impressed by you and you might as well drown your sorrows and booze. Um, She, she wasn't, she wasn't impressed by a single thing you said. Uh, the timing of her love wasn't right. Let's just maybe say it that way because that's a nicer way of looking at it rather than just thinking it was all your fault because you're a boring person. And, um, you know, let's just be polite. So uh, I guess this isn't a very impressions, uh, impressionistic song. I guess it is kind of a, a story uh, song like all my others. But, um, okay, so let's go back to the song. I'll just play the beginning. I just love how the drums just go bump, ba dump, bump, and then we start into it. I just love that that part, and you can again really listen to the bass because that's really where the beauty of this song is. Is in the bass, you know, it's just great. So go to that. I always loved singing this song live because it just has a kind of, I don't know, it's right in my range or something. It just has the right kind of beats in it that uh, feels good to sing, particularly the chorus, but really the whole song. I I just love singing this song. It's a really fun song to sing. And and incidentally, for whatever reason, the theme uh, guitar part, um, Brant, the bassist, he's actually a really good guitarist. He's a much better guitarist than I am. And whenever he picks up the guitar, just recreationally in his house, he'll play the theme, the guitar theme uh, of the song, because he, he, he likes to play it. And he plays it, of course, better than, than I can play it. I'll just play a bit of the melodies, cause, so you can... I, I hope you can tell how much I love singing the song. Oh, here she comes That must be her We re-recorded this song when we went into the studio. Um, so the version I'm playing is a version that we recorded on the cheap in our recording space and in my house. But um, when we actually went to a studio, 
we thought, man, we should re-record this and, and because I'm sure it'll be so much better when we record it in the studio. And it ended up not being better. It ended up being worse. But for some stupid reason, I included that worse version on our second album. So if you're a bread knife incident connoisseur, know that I don't endorse the second version of the song on the second album. All right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me on this long journey today. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. Because everyone deserves it, including you. So take care of yourself. All right. Bye.